This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we will be talking about the paradoxes of Jesus, as he tells people how to behave once they have set their hand to the plow, and how to treat their families. We will learn that the only destruction Jesus commands is the destruction of your paradigm. And we will learn that love and sentimentality are two very different things, which we very often confuse. And we will learn that the only fire Jesus wants to set is the fire of love, not hatred. But it will still look like division. So what I'm going to do is read one gospel passage here and talk about it, then another later on and another. Two of them from Luke, one of them from Matthew. We'll start with Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. When the days for Jesus being taken up were fulfilled, he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his reception there, but they would not welcome him because the destination of his journey was Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they journeyed to another village. As they were proceeding on their journey, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered him, Foxes have dens, and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. But he answered, Let the dead bury their dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to my family at home. To him Jesus said, No one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. So today our gospel reading begins very ominously. When the days for Jesus being taken up were fulfilled, he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem, it says. And we'll see that resolute journey to Jerusalem coming up more and more in Luke. After the turning point of Mark's midpoint, we have in Luke this relentless journey, one pace, one step after the other to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to freely die, and he's not going to let anything stop him. Not a Samaritan village that rejects him. Not newcomers who want to join on their own terms. The whole thing is supposed to convey the sense that Jesus is relentlessly fixed on his passion as his one goal. And only those who are as relentless as he is will end up where he is going. At first, James and John show what they probably thought was a passionate embrace of that single-minded pursuit of a goal. Christ plans to be a new Passover lamb, but, as we pointed out before, The apostles were expecting something totally different, a new Elijah. In Jesus' time, it was widely expected that the prophet Elijah, who departed the earth in a chariot of fire, would return with fire as well. So Jesus began to separate himself from Elijah, 
Elijah called down fire from heaven and saw his opponents slain. Jesus won't do that. And he has to tell John and James, we're not doing that. But then, in the story of Elijah meeting his new assistant prophet, Elisha, Elisha said, can I go back and say goodbye to my parents first? Elijah allowed him. Well, Jesus isn't going to do that either. He wants people to immediately set off on his journey as relentlessly as he does. Why? Because Jesus offers a picture of freedom that cuts against all our instincts. The bracing images of freedom that Jesus shares tell us who he is and who we should be. He said, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. This is Jesus, the relentless journeyer who comes from outside of our maze and wants to return outside of our maze. And he shares with us that existential angst that we talked about when we were talking about our home on earth, our lack of a home on earth. This is not where his ultimate destination is. And by showing us that, he shows us that this is not our ultimate destination either. So in this image of freedom, we're companions of Jesus on the open road, free of attachment to physical comfort, sharing in his comfort instead, and headed to our final true home. So when someone comes along and wants to bury the dead, he says, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He wants us to be an advanced crew, preparing for the king of the universe, free from the constraints of society. He says, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. He's yoking us to a new plow. We're workers preparing the soil for the sower in order to guide the plow well. We have to be free to keep our eyes forward, always forward. This is the life of a free person, a free Christian, a life where I make my own decisions unconstrained and productive for God. As St. Paul put it, for freedom Christ set us free, so stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful vision of freedom. So, why doesn't Christianity feel like freedom? In fact, Christianity often feels like the opposite of freedom. When he talks about the yoke of slavery, maybe that feels like what Christianity is in our lives. We don't experience our membership in Christ as life on the open road with Jesus. We think of it as life stuck in the granite walls of a church listening to orders from a priest. Or we don't feel like the advanced crew of the King of Heaven. We feel like the only people who are not allowed to have fun with the rest of the world. Or maybe we do feel like we're working a plow, but we feel like it's a yoke around us in our neck, forcing us to follow the straight lines someone else devised for us. So how is this freedom at all? Ultimately, Jesus' message is that service is freedom from slavery to selfishness and that the only real freedom is freedom to love. As I said before, marriage looks like slavery unless you add love. And to be free to follow and serve, you have to love God above all and your neighbor as yourself. But we cut into our freedom all the time by loving wrong, by attaching ourselves to the things which make us less free. The more we act to feed our appetites, the more enslaved to our appetites we will be. The more we serve our neighbor when we'd rather not, the more free we will be to serve. 
We strengthen temptation by indulging temptation, and we weaken our will at the same time. We strengthen our will by insisting on it, which weakens temptation. Sinning makes you a slave of sin. Resisting makes you a friend of Jesus Christ, the one true free man. The logic may be obvious when you spell it out a certain way, but it certainly doesn't come to us very easily. We have to learn it the hard way, through the cross. I think it comes down to having a flexible will. That's what Father Arthur Swain told me when he was preparing me for confirmation in college. You have to develop a flexible will, he said, over and over again. And I'd never heard the phrase flexible will before, but I figured I would hear it a lot in my Catholic life. I was wrong. I don't think I ever heard it again, which is a shame, because I think it's a very helpful phrase. The Gospels that we're reading today show what a flexible will looks like. A will that can choose what is best for it rather than being led by the nose by appetites or desires. The people Jesus calls in the gospel that we read want to follow Jesus but don't have the ability to do so. They need to bid farewell to family members first, living or dead. Jesus calls out their inflexible wills, saying no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. Contrast Jesus' way where he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem. That resolution comes from a flexible will, whereas an inflexible will, like most of us have, never gains that kind of determination and single-mindedness. I see it in myself all the time, and Father Swain's warning often sounds in my heart. My will is inflexible at mealtimes. I want to give my stomach and my taste buds all they want, when they want it, in the way they want it. My will is inflexible when plans change and I either refuse to change with them or make everyone suffer my unhappiness at the new plan. My will is also inflexible at prayer time when, instead of doing the deep, attentive meditation that will hold a mirror up to my spirit, I want to cut corners so that I can busy myself with social media, emails, work, something, anything else besides the deep prayer that I need. When I think of the Catholics I most admire, they are not like that. They have a joyful acceptance of whatever comes along. They can eat or not, change plans, and immerse themselves in prayer. They have truly achieved what St. Paul described. For freedom, Christ set us free. They're not set free for irritable, foot-dragging, complaining obedience. They are set free for freedom, for resolution, headed toward Jerusalem. So I like the idea of a flexible will even if it isn't in popular use. I googled it to see if I was just missing something, if it is in popular use, but somehow has escaped my attention. And I can assure you, according to Google, it is not. Historian Lacey Baldwin-Smith used it, the last I could find, uh, to talk about Elizabethan England and what Catholics needed as they suffered terrible persecution. She said, quote, The Catholic Church was forced to find new strength and new spiritual resources with which to roll back the armies of the devil. They needed the tempered and flexible will of Ignatius Loyola and his Society of Jesus and not the soft compromise and idle words of humanistic scholars. So many think that America is headed toward a time of more persecution, and we will need the same thing, not a spirit of compromise or a spirit of spite, but a strong, flexible will, capable of choosing the best way, the loving way, 
even when it's the hard way. We'll never develop that flexible will unless we start flexing it in small things every day, starting today. Which brings me to my next gospel reading. I'm going to read the Matthew version of this, but I'll refer later to the harsher Luke version. This is from Matthew 10, verses 37 to 42. Jesus said to his apostles, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever receives a righteous man, because he is a righteous man, will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives only a cup of cold water to one of these little ones to drink, because the little one is a disciple, amen, I say to you, he will surely not lose his reward. So I'm going to bet that the chances are that you or someone you know is failing to follow the warning Jesus gives there. And chances are you feel like it's the right thing to do. But what Jesus warns about is One of the greatest threats the church faces in any age, and failing to follow it has literally laid waste to the Catholic faith in large parts of the world today. And what Jesus warns about is loving your family more than him. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, he says. In the first place, you see the impact of this in our daily routines, morning, noon, and night. In the morning, you have the intention to pray, but you don't because you would rather chat with a family member or friend or interact with them on social media or answer emails from them than take the 15 minutes it takes to pray. Or maybe we're the problem in someone else's life. Our family member doesn't pray because we put demands on their time in the morning. At noon, we want to show devotion to God by crossing ourselves and praying before lunch but we don't for fear it might offend somebody in the office or the restaurant, somebody who, in action at least, we love more than God. In the afternoon, maybe we have the intention to give to those in need, to be generous, but we don't because we've overspent our budget on things that people in our lives wanted rather than what things people in our community need. In the evening, we intend to pray a family rosary, But some people in the family tend to complain when we ask them to do that, so we skip it to save face in front of them. Or maybe we're the ones who are feeling lazy and not up for it tonight, so we skip it and lose that opportunity for everybody else. What these amount to are loving others more than God. So they're pretty straightforward failures of the two great commandments we talked about in the last episode. Love God above all things, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wants us to learn from this lesson that love and sentimentality are two different things. Sometimes it feels a little like rudeness when you decide you have to assert God's place in your life, when you have to cut a conversation short to go pray, or deny an expenditure that your son wants in favor of something someone else needs, or interrupt your family's evening pastimes to spend time with God. But that's only difficult when we confuse what feels nice with what is true and right and best. The same kind of confusion of sentimentality and real love 
impacts our daily routines, but also impacts our lifelong worldviews. And this seems like it's even more dire for us. So let's start with a clear example with gluttony, anger, and greed. These are deadly sins, but we often find ourselves overlooking them in people in our family because we don't want to upset them. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to harp on them. We don't want to offend them in how they're acting. But soon we're overeating and overdrinking alongside them or obsessing with clickbait, rage, political stories with them or putting money first in our lives because they've led the way there. Or to take a more serious issue, we always knew that abortion was wrong, but then when one of our loved ones was contemplating abortion, we accompanied them, if not literally, at least in spirit, giving them false comfort instead of real love, and refusing to challenge them, refusing to find a way to tell them that there are other options. Or we simply avoided the issue, saying nothing at all. Before long, when we do this enough times, killing an unborn child starts to feel like love when it's not, really. And many, many people changed their opinion of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer movement because of family members. Nearly everybody once believed, as Barack Obama put it when he was running for president, that Marriage is something sanctified between a man and a woman. And they intuitively knew that changing the definition of marriage would push more and more people into lifestyles that, as recent Biden administration research points out, are far more prone to depression, addiction, and suicidal ideation. But we didn't say anything. We went along with it. And then pretty soon, it felt more loving to go along with it. It felt like it was rude to bring up Christ's teaching or wrong to bring up Christ's teaching. And in these cases, when our loved ones objected to Jesus Christ's way, truth, and life, we ended up siding with our loved ones and turning our back on our Savior and on their Savior also. St. Augustine gave one answer to all of these dilemmas. When our family says, love us, Augustine said to answer, I will love you in Christ, not instead of Christ. You will be with me in him, but I will not be with you without him. Whenever we choose family members at the expense of Jesus Christ, we end up hurting those family relationships. In our daily routines, if we choose human preferences instead of prayer, service, and public witness, our families over time will grow less close, not more close. And as regards our lifelong worldview, an attitude that tolerates sin quickly becomes toxic in our relationships. We become codependent with those we live with. And being an unquestioning ally to a family member is easier and keeps the peace, but only at the expense of the truth of Christ, who died for that family member and loves them according to the truth that will make them whole. In fact, that's what it all comes down to. Who do you love more? St. Augustine says that when we try to love Jesus Christ more than family, our family might respond, but we don't care for Christ. When they do, he says, we need to be prepared to answer back, and I care for Christ more than I care for you. Does that sound like a mean thing to say? If Jesus Christ is God, coming to give us life and give it more abundantly, then it's objectively not a mean thing to say. And good things follow if we love God above all things and our neighbor as ourselves, says Jesus himself in the gospel that we read. 
He says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That means whoever wants total control on their terms of their life will feel lost. Whoever gives over control to God, who is incarnate in Christ, will be freed. Then he gives specific scenarios of people who did this right. Those who receive a prophet or a righteous person, or even give a cup of water to a disciple, will be rewarded. How? By more abundant life. More peace, more love, more joy, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more self-control. In fact, by following Jesus Christ and putting him first, we get all these things that we keep hearing about and keep striving for but never fully capture. We will finally live life to the full. We will get more out of life. We will renew our relationships. We will even feel fulfilled. And by turning our back on sin, we will be freed from addictions. We will begin to fulfill our life goals. We will live for others finally and become who I was meant to be. It starts with being able to say, I love you, but expect you to respect my beliefs. It moves to being able to say, I love you too much to lie to you about your choices. But ultimately it means, I want to live a free life in God. I want that for me, but I also want it for you. So one final gospel from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Jesus, the cause of division. I came to cast fire upon the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am constrained until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For henceforth in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against her mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Okay, so this is another dangerous extremist gospel to cap off the other dangerous extremist gospels we've been reading. Because Jesus does sound to modern ears like a dangerous extremist when he says, on the one hand, to choose him over your family, and on the other, that he's come to cause division with your family. But in fact, Jesus is not the extremist in any of this. We are, and Jesus is calling us out on it. Because, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but we already reject our family for things far less important than God. Our actions too often say that we love our work more than our families, which is a bizarre set of priorities. We love our addictions more than our kids. We love our angry moods more than our spouses. We love our greed more than our neighbor's needs. And we love ourselves above all. How's that for extremism? Jesus says he did not come to bring peace, but division. A father will be divided against his son and a son against his father. And then he goes down to the level of mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, which I always thought was a note of realism as well. Notice, though, what he does not say. What he does say is he's going to set members of a household against each other. What he does not call his followers to is the false peace of separation and the false charity of indifference. He wants a son and a father to have to confront each other's ideas in a household 
and he wants in-laws to have to reckon with in-laws. So he isn't saying, if you don't like your brother, don't talk to him. He's not saying, if your kids make you mad or your parents make you mad, blow them off. No, he's saying our first mission fields are our families. They are the people with whom our commitment to our faith is first put to the test. But what does he mean, I have come to set fire on the earth, and oh, how I wish it were already blazing? He wants to shake us up and help us find our focus. He's anxious to see us succeed in the spiritual life, and he wants his urgency to be infectious. He comes to give us the fire of the Holy Spirit, to purify us, burn away the chaff, and fill us with his love. When you hear fire in the Bible, there's kind of two different but related things that the word conjures up. There's the word on fire, the flaming words on the tablets of Mount Sinai, and there's fire of destruction. The fire he brings is the potency of his word, the saving message of the scriptures that make us glow with zeal. But the same fire is a fire of judgment. God is an all-consuming fire, says St. Paul, a fire that purifies what is strong by burning up what is weak. You see it in the tongues of flame that hovered over the apostles' heads and the flames of Christ's eyes in Revelation. There's a baptism with which I must be baptized, and how great is my anguish until it is accomplished, he says. What he's describing is the baptism in his blood that will come through his passion, an experience that we will have to follow him through, an experience he calls a baptism by fire, a trial through ordeal that is impossible to survive with our selfishness intact. Jesus means to put an end to the carefree days when we could politely ignore the fundamental differences we have with the people around us. He demands that when we are given a choice between pleasing him and pleasing our children or parents or co-workers, we choose pleasing him. It's no good pretending this isn't a sad choice to have to make, but it's also no good pretending that the alternative isn't much, much worse. And it's time to take the battle against extreme selfishness and wrong family priorities seriously. There is no peace possible between the comfort my body wants and the resolution he wants. As Lucia dos Santos, the oldest of the three Fatima visionaries, said, quote, The final battle between the Lord and the reign of Satan will be about marriage and the family. And anyone who operates for the sanctity of marriage and the family will always be contended and opposed in every way, because this is the decisive issue. But do not be afraid. Our Lady has already crushed Satan's head. Our victory will come, but only when we sacrifice everything in the battle. End quote. In the face of this terror, Padre Pio and Mother Teresa are great examples of putting Jesus' commands into action. Padre Pio's father, Grazio Mario Forgione, was a great example of what sacrificing your family life for God looks like. He left Italy for America to work for enough money to give his son the opportunity to be a seminarian, and his sacrifice inspired a saint who changes lives to this day. Mother Teresa's father, Nicolae, spent time fighting the anti-religious powers that were rising in Albania, his country, and died, perhaps of poisoning, when his family was young. His daughter heard the lesson loud and clear. He inspired her life of commitment to the gospel that got her barred from her own native land and family. She was no longer able to come home to Albania, and she expressed perfectly what it means to comply with Jesus Christ's demand when she said, 
Quote, By blood, I am Albanian. By citizenship, an Indian. By faith, I am a Catholic nun. As to my calling, I belong to the world. As to my heart, I belong entirely to the heart of Jesus. End quote. And that's a great way to leave this episode. There's a way to get this message totally wrong and suddenly decide that loving Jesus means not loving your family. Loving Jesus means not engaging with your family. Loving Jesus means dismissing the sinful members of your family. That's not at all what this means. If we neglect our own families for Jesus, it had better send the strong message of love and sacrifice Mother Teresa's father and Padre Pio's father did, and not the bitter message that we love our own self-image and our own decision to follow a righteous battle more than those who sacrifice for us in our own family. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story.